Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 18. Tall man had me pinned to the floor, his wide, calloused hands around my chubby throat. This was not a warning and not a crafted piece of theater designed to intimidate. He was tightening his powerful grip because he wanted me dead, and there wasn't anything I could do about it. Just before unconsciousness, I saw Glau slide in like a ghost on a soft breeze, a huge, curved-bladed knife in hand which I hadn't known he carried and couldn't piece out where, even upon later contemplation. He slipped it under the man's chin. Blacking out from blood constriction doesn't mean you necessarily stay out for long. It may have only been a few seconds. The first thing to confront me upon coming to was the pain. I coughed and choked and spat from being so manhandled in Captain Zakoriga's mad attempt on my life. He wasn't one of Piani's boys. Oh, no, he was something much worse. A true patriot. Lord save us from loyal sons of the empire, said some nobleman or other way back in the past, probably after a day that looked much like this one. Just for a moment, though, it was hard to tell what was memory and what was imagination, or if those two things were distinct in any substantial way. Glautuk had him up against a bulkhead. For a molasses second or two, I thought I'd died, and that this was hell. Those two were whispering back and forth in a particularly snappish way, peculiar to low-speak uttered in anger. It was their first language, and they could speak volumes with just a few words. I couldn't hear them clearly, nor was my retinal translation good enough to follow such an abbreviated exchange. Really, it just made a hash of the threats and warnings passing between the two men. Intoning seven jokes of it. Your parents must love cabbage. My ship, not his honor. The last one was clear enough, and I spoke up, or should say gagged up, because I tried to speak and immediately vomited, stomach acid and slime scraping a tortured throat. It ran out of my nostrils and made my eyes stream. Everyone stepped back, but not too far. This was some rare entertainment. The others around were captains, ensigns, and bureaucrats. When the retching subsided, they moved in, now oh so solicitous with the violence and flying gorge in the past. Hands were at my sides, standing me upright, while slippered feet avoided the puddle of puke on the floor. Glau still had his giant blade to the left side of the captain's throat, just under his ear. This, even while digging into the man's eyes with his own. Captain Zakoriga made note of my choking and coughing soliloquy with a quick dart of the eyes, but the shieldman didn't seem to. 
For a moment, in fact, I thought he was really going to kill this guy. But he was just being vigilant. It was what he was trained for. Nothing got by him. Glautuk! <coughs> I croaked out, bile tasting acrid and hot on my tongue. Let him go! Weapon out! <coughs> but let him go. In another sort of story, I'd have painted myself the hero. I would have been in the right, and Zakoraga would have been the brute. He was tall and lean, with hard, ropey muscles that held nothing but condensed strength. He wore a long, drooping mustache that did little to hide his bad acne scars and only enhanced the power of his perpetual scowl. During the run-up to this sideshow, he'd spoken in monosyllables and half-sentences and then barked at people when they misapprehended his words or intentions. He was quite used to giving orders and having them be obeyed. He was a leader, in other words, and didn't like other leaders leading him. That said, he wasn't in charge here, yet thought he should be, and this violent tableau was the final of many back-and-forth rudeness workouts that, through a blurred parade of leaders, had left me lustily desirous of targeting something, anything, while sitting in a modern gunnery suite. Glau eased back, obeying, without easing his watchfulness. Zikoraga took it in with polinium eyes that never blinked. The man wasn't cowed, wasn't scared, and wasn't done. Behind the guy, his two officers had been held back by some of the others in the room when they'd pressed forward to aid their captain. A foreign familian Kano dictates the course of this family's destiny. It was no question. Zikorga spoke in slow, careful low-speak this time. My rig followed his words easily, now that he was choosing them with care and cerebral purpose. Yes, in another story, this encounter would have happened quickly, coming on the heels of that mad flight from the assassin ship and the terrifying standoff with the traitor Omatsu. Plans and agreements would have been reached without a single aspect of noteworthiness, bricks in the foundation of a greater tale of imperial destiny in the storied romance of a lonely wanderer. But that was someone else's yarn to spin. It was now nearing three months real time since all this had started, when a nobleman, through no fault of his own, turned out to be a literal pain in my neck. We were currently on the armored cruiser Izana, which had spent twenty days hopping from place to place, and half again that much in jump space. Twelve weeks of travel. Meetings disguised as formal dinners, as parties, as chance encounters on far-flung stations. I didn't know anyone, but I met with them. I didn't know anyone even after I met with them. Every exchange was with someone new, and they quickly blurred together. People who might help, who might join us and be loyal, either to their old friends, the Codgets, or to their new ones, I assured, the Vernays. And if neither family was a big enough draw, I woefully railed upon the future of the Empire. And it was working. At least that's what people nearby said, people whose personal interests were, in my estimation, best served when they themselves, K-2 
kept to the truth about this circumstance. That was about as close to trust as I could manufacture. It's how the weeks had evolved. Could I accept the word of this man to relate quality intel back to his faction? Could I count on that woman to do what she promised and bring the topic up in her social sphere? Would these particular noble siblings commit their money and reputations to the cause? Because it was the cause that mattered. The cause was what we needed families to rally to. The cause was an amorphous beast that could be whatever we demanded of it. The empire, the emperor as a man, the Kajits, the late Kamo Kajit Boudin, the Vernays family, Elmond Vernays Pandendia himself, or, much to my surprise and horror, even me. More specifically, the creature I started hearing about, referred to by both regal types and those with the calluses of honest labor on their hands, that being called Estarun. Weird myths, obscure and conflicting, centered around this rogue alliance super-soldier protecting Vernay's interests. Piani had mentioned it, so had Glautuk. The first time I was referred to in this context to my face had actually happened on an early visit with the Vernays, long before I had signed to Dorcas of the Heather. For a few minutes, I honestly believed the young man who'd been speaking was yammering on and on about some adventure vid he'd seen. I remember being annoyed by his lack of attention and a juvenile enthusiasm for make-believe. When it became clear he was speaking of something he contended to be factual, I thought him an inbred aristocratic idiot who had conflated reality with that vid. Then, with an electric jolt, I saw him looking at me like I was some sort of folk hero come to life. Breathlessly, the planet Barlow was described to the room in sweeping, romantic terms like a tale of old set in a land of magic and dragons. Syndra was recontextualized as something on the order of a fairy princess, and Baron Deskew, an evil wizard. Up until then, I had considered the Baron's involvement to be a highly classified matter, known to very few, rather than the subject of common gossip. Since this conflict with Piani Trasal had begun, therefore... I traded on my filmy reputation of being a legendary warrior, avenger, assassin, whatever they thought I was before they met me. I scowled if rich, important people seemed to expect it. I laughed good-naturedly if they were nervous. I spouted carefully rehearsed Seishan epithets if they valued rank and tradition. It was all an act, and all repellent and it had been going on for a quarter annum by the time this man, who was under no illusions about my character, throttled me. When Captain Joran Sikorga had walked into the meeting and then looked at me like he smelled something bad, my patience, the amount of which had been ever shrinking, finally ran dry. I had not gotten anywhere near enough sleep for weeks by this point, and had been ingesting way too much coffee and tea and other stimulants in an effort to make up for it. Zakoraga had immediately put my bad mood into overdrive, and it was now well understood to have been mutual. Okay, gorgeous, 
I'd said to him, pointing at his face from across the table so there'd be no mistake. Why don't we start with you trading in that moldy sneer for a little professionalism? Lacking any English, he'd been listening to his own auto-translation, and the sniping conversation that followed between us lasted only three more minutes before the man leapt out of his seat with murder in his small, hazel eyes. Apparently, I wasn't the only guy sleep-deprived. Zakorga now stood, eyes on the shieldman, face a flinty mask of fury. I'm calling this meeting, I croaked out slowly righting my chair and then sitting. Gingerly, I rubbed my neck, still feeling his python grip. We reconvene on five-day, after lunch, 1330 hours. Then I stared at the angry spaceman, waiting until we locked eyes. Captain, if you're willing to follow any of my commands at all, then I'm ordering you to get some rest. I'm going to do the same. We'll start all over again, and this encounter never happened. Are we clear? He shifted his gaze back to Glautuk, as if the Kukri knife was the one giving orders. After a few moments, he nodded, and then stepped away from the bulkhead, his two subordinate officers falling in behind. They were young, a man and a woman, and they both wore expressions just like their commanding officer, even going so far as to toss me biting glances over their shoulders before exiting through the hatch. Such wonderful people you meet on the road, I muttered, waving off some officer whose name escaped me, just then moving in to be of service. The day was done. The cleaning crew had a puddle of sickness to deal with, and I was good golly gosh tired of everyone, especially me. I slept in, which was unusual, but I sure did need it. Laying in bed, lights at the level of dim twilight that I favored, the vague, dull impression of voices calling out came wandering along. I didn't recognize them at all, and they tumbled over each other so very quickly, like muddy, cascading water in a swollen river, that I couldn't make out the words. They may not have been speaking English, or even speaking at all, I don't know. But I could hear pain in their voices. Lancing pain with strains of true torment rising up from the rushing, rising waters of outrage and revenge. It was curious, especially when another voice rumbled from somewhere far off, deeper underneath, from unfathomable depths. It was saying that I should wake up, that this wasn't real. The voice started off calmly enough, but it became more and more urgent, and eventually hysterical, a baritone note below the shrieks, fundamentally different, but seemingly singing the same song, if it was a song, and not a death rattle. I tried to comply. I tried. The voice boomed, wake up, you fool, wake up before you never do. But I couldn't. That rising flood tide of tortured voices, with such thundering, anticipated, endless silences between them all were utterly 
paralyzing. They held me down, dragged me down as the roiling water rose up with hunger and jealousy over my immobility and banality and utter, utter ineffectualness. As I slipped under the boiling black wetness, the screams and that groan-like warning note became a single united wail of agony coming from me, from everyone. I didn't know it was a nightmare until I realized I was awake and had been for some time. The habit of eating in the enlisted mess instead of the officer's wardroom, which some seemed to think more appropriate, had become my norm. I usually sat alone. The hands wouldn't dare come near, and neither would Izana's officers. Indeed, none of the uniformed personnel appeared to understand my role here, nor even my identity. And anyway, meeting new people had always been hard. Was I a civilian advisor, a spy, a nobleman, a family member, a friendly hanger-on? I was seen by the crew to come and go through the companionways, meeting with important people, yet I didn't have staff of my own. Just a strange, fat mystery. In fact, I'd been offered a grander cabin and three personal servants, including a secretary. That sounded a little too much like being someone's boss, so I declined. I requested a tiny, private cabin that I could lock from the inside, and nothing more. I had plenty of office-type applications installed on my retinals, and once given access to the shipwide net, was able to write notes, make calls, and organize meetings without even leaving the privacy of that narrow berth. I also took care of business while eating breakfast and basking in my morning coffee, all alone in the crowded mess. On the topic of coffee, this ship served up a spectacular espresso, available to one and all 24-7. Instead of a big dispenser, it came out of a strange machine made of glass, brown ceramic spheres and shiny steel pipes that steamed and whistled, producing a fresh cup each time. So impressed by this brew, I tracked down the service manual for the machine within the ship's archive. Apparently, inside of it, there was a liquid nitrogen freezer, which kept a hopper full of whole beans at around 72 degrees Kelvin. When an eager coffee fan pressed the dispense button on the front of the machine, seven grams of beans dropped into a tiny enclosed mortar chamber. At such a low temperature, the beans shattered to minuscule fragments when they had steam forced through for three seconds to bring them up to room temperature. Then they were bathed in 95 degrees centigrade water, that is 368 degrees Kelvin, for about 45 more seconds. This resulted in an espresso that was not to be rivaled, let alone beaten. Full-bodied, hot, not at all acidic, but blacker than space, it dribbled into tiny, high-impact porcelain cups. 
These were loaded up in a rack to one side that acted as a gravity feed. When you press the button, a cup rolled in, and less than a minute later, after a frankly alarming thud, followed by hisses and gurgles, you had a cup of the most aromatic brew you could hope for. There were further dispensers beyond for creamer and sweeteners of many kinds, but I liked mine black, which, all on its own, seemed to garner stares. Nearly everything about me was unusual to these people, and therefore worthy of discussion, though apparently not with me. Our goals and strategies were hot topics, but that was to be expected. I picked up these topics by osmosis, mostly, while hands were hustling from one set of involved labors to another. Busy work was vital on a ship in space, because too much time on one's hands led to bad things. That was a general axiom of the military anyway, and I was beginning to see why. First off, there seemed to be way more crew members aboard Izana than were strictly required. Every position had multiple qualified people in redundant standby, flowing through their duties in what I would have normally considered quarter shifts, one after the other, in neat succession. On a commercial vessel, you had what you needed and little more. You hired the highly skilled or multi-talented, or people who could fake it, so as to fill in for someone else when things went wrong. You didn't have the comparative luxury of excessive expertise being available for each possible responsibility aboard ship. On more than one cruise, I signed on to do one job and by the end was responsible for two or more. Illnesses, accidents, or other unforeseen circumstances could crop up at any time. The more you could do, even passingly well, the more valuable you were generally considered to be. This utility had saved me from more than one dismissal, I'm sure, interpersonal issues having arisen in predictable fashion. I'd even been hired for odd positions over others with higher ratings, specifically because I had a variety of minor certs. On one trip, where I was a general gopher, running from small task to smaller task, an engineering hand fell down a set of metal stairs and broke her arm. I was able to set and splint it, and then get the woman settled into her bunk before the alleged medico aboard was able to make a drunken appearance with some expired pain meds. Then I filled in for the injured woman, patching pipes and hand-re-chroming engine housings. You didn't have to be an expert in everything. My only high cert was in ship defense. General competency could be valuable in and of itself. One thing I had no prior experience or training in was leadership. The altercation with Captain Zikoraga was entirely on me. I saw he was exhausted the moment he walked in, but I was too fried to care. I had pushed myself for too long, and that made me a liability, certainly in the meeting and possibly to the entire mission. I wanted to send a note of apology to the man's ship, parked as it was only ten kilometers off dorsal, and a little aft, but I had stated that the fight never happened, so it seemed best for everyone's egos to respect my own edict. His vessel was a late-model frame hauler called Dumor Sifka, 
in a peculiar low-speak Arabic dialect which my translation app couldn't render any better than Tears of the Aurora's Shame in English. I doubted that was even close to accurate and intended to ask Glau for something better, though I don't think I ever actually did. Frame hauler was a general ship classification for a number of styles of jump-capable vessels. They ranged wildly, both in form and size. What they did all have in common, though, were powerful main drive engines and rigid exterior skeletons, complete with clamps and power sockets for locking on automated container boats. Super haulers might have moved hundreds or even thousands of containers and boats at a time, in rather amorphous clouds, star-jumping together along specified routes. Frame haulers filled in the gaps, often plucking up cargo loads dropped in one system by a super hauler and transporting them to small settlements and remote stations that weren't along the super's route. Dumor Sifka was currently bearing container boats filled with a variety of materials, including foodstuffs and fuel. In fact, everything on its manifest was useful to a war fleet, which was no coincidence. I hadn't had the mental flow-through to study Zikoraga's background before he'd been ushered into the meeting, his little helpers in tow. He'd been waiting for nearly two hours before that, out in the officer's lounge, which also had a lot of excellent coffee available. Running low on energy and cooling his heels, he probably tanked up on caffeine, cursing me under and over his breath the whole time. The man came in hating this situation, and probably me, for being a weird foreigner that didn't even speak the lingo. For my part, he was just one face atop another, one meeting out of seven I'd already had that day. Being the last of the day, I'd impatiently waited for his to begin so it could be over, not really thinking about him at all. <laughs> wow, I had deserved a throttling. I was supposed to meet with a finance specialist, recently arrived, who'd been dispatched from Duenda to go over the budgetary status of the Vernay's end of this developing show. On a whim, after finishing my second tiny cup, I called this accountant's AI secretary and referred it to my own assistant, who would be more than happy to sit down and review each and every line item. Since I didn't have an assistant, I offered the algorithm no contact information. A machine doesn't sputter or act confused when it's given the brush off, which rather dulls the joy of doing it, but hey, it was wartime. One had to make sacrifices. Lost in such petty thrills, cup number three became tepid, and I downed it in a single gulp. A little bland from the temperature, it was nonetheless rich and aromatic. I found myself enjoying it so much that I actually missed my usual powdered joe. It was perfect, but not for me. Not in a moment of reflection and painful clarity. I was in charge of this situation, this mess. I was the one to be opposed, resented and subverted by contrarians for no other reason than because I was in charge. Not everyone thought like that, but I always had, and I wasn't unique. Supply slowdowns, maintenance delays, 
unimportant issues that took precedence over all others. Physical assaults during meetings. These were signs of discontent and dysfunction. Poor management, in other words. This ship was one among many sitting in a parking orbit close to the jump point of a star system that had no name, only a number designation. It was uninhabited. There weren't any traffic buoys. It was typical of the sort of places where we were hanging out these days whenever there were rushed meetings and private exchanges of information, materiel, and personnel. These things were bubbling in the background, out in the hinterlands and back-alley star systems of the territory, rather than taking place overtly upon settled planets and controlled space stations. Physically, I felt better than the previous evening, though my neck was sore. I didn't want a nerve block lest it remind people of an incident they were supposed to forget. I left the mess deck and ventured out in the vague direction of my little cabin. There was a conference call coming up about supply routes and distribution schedules that I'd been planning to sit in upon. They didn't need me, but I liked to be aware of the logistics. Most of the time I didn't have much to add to such conversations, so I'd lay on my bunk during those just listening. Another call came in then, as I was stalking down the companionway. It was from Syndra, whom I'd left behind in a star system light years away. She had been livid when we last spoke, believing I was cutting her out of the action, which I was. I just threw her some nonsense justifications and star jumped away. Why had I said no? It was a chance to face danger with one of the very few people out of over a trillion in the settled galaxy that I actually trusted and loved. Well, face danger. Put that way, the answer was self-evident. Because of this, I was expecting an earful of invective when I opened the call, not her usual crusty happiness. You look like someone picked you up and used you to beat someone else with, Space Air. She started, instantly noting the bruised neck and frazzled, stressed visage of her Hanonclo through the image supplied by my new comring. I'd needed something. She had on a weird fluffy hat and a smear of bright orange eyeshadow that turned her into a neon raccoon. It was a good sign. Always a pleasure. You just jump in? Ja, a freighter. Supplies and people. Elmond also has a packet of documents for you and wanted it to be hand-delivered. Ah, I flared, deciding to leave those garbage justifications back where I'd first spewed them. It was really nice to see her. I'll forever remember this moment when Sindrine of Vernays became my courier. We should get you one of those smart little uniforms they wear, you know, with the floppy hats. Hm, on me it would look good. Where are you right now? I gawked for an intersection number in the companionway just to be teasingly useless, but this ship used names instead of numbers, all of which seemed to be written in some derivative Arabic script. I gave up the gag after a second of confusion. I'm on Izana. It's the... Uh, what did they call it? The Cephalodon Harabia? 
The what? You should be jailed for murdering languages, Spacer. Your lowspeak is worth less than a dog spit, and now even English dies in your mouth. That wasn't English. I don't know what it is. I'm on the biggest ship in this group. Have them page me when you come aboard. She nodded and was about to break the call when I had a thought. Elmont had sent her, despite knowing how I felt, despite... I think agreeing with me about the dangers involved, at least in the abstract. Like I said, he was a smart guy. Hey, look, I'm sorry for excluding you before. Despite the risks out here, that wasn't my decision to make. It was yours. And on top of that, you said I would need help, and you were right. Want to stay? She studied me through her own comm device, across the shrinking kilometers of emptiness that lay between us. I was speaking in direct contrast to the content of our last meeting. I could see the gears working. The ship I'm on is returning to Duenda as soon as the cargo and soldiers are delivered, she said after a moment. I will leave a message with the captain for Elmond. What do you want me to do? I'll send over my schedule for the next week. Pick a few items from the list and handle them. If you're okay with it, then going forward, any duties of a similar nature will be all yours. I'll send out a note to everyone that you're here for the duration and that you speak for the Vernay's Patriarch just like me. You're good at managing people. Whatever the problems are, solve them. If you hit a wall, I'll jump in, but only to back your play, whatever it is. She looked shocked at this. I think she was expecting to act as a glorified secretary. You want me to make decisions? This is war. What do I know about fighting? You've seen your share. Her face went blank. We rarely ever mention Barlow between us. I needed her to understand that people had died in this conflict and that more were going to follow, perhaps many more. If she chose to stay, there was a chance it could happen to her, or to me, or to both of us. Of course, she already knew that, but I needed to say it, and referencing the past was the quickest way. Barlow was shorthand, a touchstone of blood, fear, tragedy, and all that could cause those things. Send what you have. I will research your meeting topics, deadlines, and the people involved. From there, I will begin. I gave her a very slight, very tight smile. It was a mask, constraining both grief and happiness on my face. Thank you, Sindra. See you soon. King Uda Yadenga, leader of the holy state of Baikoko, was a Muslim, a socialist, and a passionate supporter of human rights, according to his PR office. The man's record showed something entirely different and far more ugly. Your classic strongman, tyrant, dictator, bully boy. 
a distant relation to a minor noble house, he'd gained control of several adjacent mining systems, each filled with communities clinging to asteroids and vacuum-steep planetoids under difficult conditions and rather complete oppression. He declared himself to be king of his star systems, though he had no royal blood. He paid homage, taxes, and lip service to Emperor Augustine, leader of the territory as a whole, which allowed the man to keep both his power and his title. His mining interests fed industry and commerce throughout this entire part of space. He had deployed guns upon his own people a number of times, at least one of those in conjunction with troops provided by the throne. We were supporting the Emperor, which meant Yadenga was on our side, and it made me sick. You look pensive, Captain Zakoraga said, half a step behind as we walked to the next meeting. Three days on, in the midst of a mob of undersecretaries, scribes, and imperial scholars, lawyers really, this was the very first thing the guy chose to say to me since the fight. He spoke slowly, carefully, so my rig could translate without error. Was he being a jerk? Was he baiting me? Or was this an olive branch? I'd gotten a couple of nights of moderately decent sleep, Syndra having lifted a huge chunk of the workload from my shoulders almost instantly, so I rolled with the least obnoxious option on the list. Counts I get, captains I get, but kings? I'm afraid my alliance upbringing is about to show. I understand the guy has issues with half of Lady Trissal's allies, so he isn't likely to be joining her cause, but that doesn't make him a friend of ours. Yet we absolutely can't afford to let him sit on the sidelines. They say he's a proud man, the spacer replied evenly, and without any rancor I could detect. By gum if he wasn't trying. That came as such a relief it made me chuckle. <laughs> Flattery then? If we can stomach it. Yadenga had arrived late the previous third shift. Our rescheduled meeting had mutated into a reception for him, a cocktail party expected to last a few hours, so my question was valid. He had recently made a purchase of 38 late-model, long-range military strikers, a type of ship that could jump in, make coordinated attacks drop off small troop units, or just have a quick look around, and then jump out again within mere minutes, making it difficult for an enemy to target them. Currently, our forces had no such unit. I'm not sure, frankly. Do you drink? Champagne, maybe? I do not, he replied, sounding like he wished he did. Well, there are soft drinks, fruit juice, coffee, and various teas, I listed. For my own part, I'm going to start with ice water and see where the evening leads. We need this fellow, yes? We need his ships. It sounds like no one especially needs him. Package deal, though. Would it be better if he sold them? Of course, but how could we afford that? Perhaps we don't have to. There are rumors, well, more than rumors, that King Yadenga has deep personal debts. I nodded because others had brought it up just the day before in one of the endless meetings, 
though it had gone nowhere because details were scanty. He's in no rush to pay those back, I said. Most of his loans are said to be with foreign banks that have limited bite over here in the Empire. As a foreign national yourself with strong local ties, the captain countered, you might be in a position to put some teeth behind that bite. Create a finance company headquartered on Duenda, then approach his foreign banks and buy up his debts. Debts are valueless if they can't be collected upon, so you'd probably get them for cheap. What's that old phrase, puppies on the dollar? Pennies. Pennies. What, what is this? A tiny unit of some old Terran money system. A certain number of them made up a dollar. He laughed, showing crooked teeth. He might not have been a handsome man, but his grin was infectious. <laughs> that makes much more sense. I always wondered about the context. So, get hold of the king's debt, then contact his financial advisors to let them know you're calling it in, that you will appeal to the throne if necessary to obtain seizure rights of liquefiable assets equal to the sum. It would ruin the man and plunge his fiefdom into financial chaos. We were passing an alcove just then. The cocktail party was in the officer's lounge ahead. I could hear people laughing from an open door where a soldier stood at attention. Zikoriga was being an asset to me just then, possibly because he felt as embarrassed by our first encounter as I did. Whatever the motivation, his approach was quite welcome. We've looked into his larger security status, I replied, now in a hushed tone due to our relative proximity to the subject of our conversation. The strikers are held under an imperial indulgence. Yadenga doesn't even technically own them. They belong to the kingdom of Baikoko as a whole in Augustine's name. The starship captain turned his back on the door, keeping his voice down as he replied. Even better, then, you can bypass the man entirely. The emperor cannot arbitrarily place the property of a loyal nobleman into the hands of another family, but... He can mitigate a financial disaster in a client state by relocating assets held in his name. Offer to lease the ships from the imperial government in exchange for holding off on collection of the debt. Yadenga will have no choice but to agree, but he can make a show of transferring them to you as his contribution to the Kajit cause, as opposed to losing them in financial arbitration. A fat king saves face while we get the strikers, and the emperor will be drawn in a bit deeper. The time rapidly approaches when he'll need to take a stand, something he won't do until he's sure he can win. I looked at this guy, whom I'd fought with only a few days before. He did the same in return, offering no indication of latent hostility or even mild resentment. That's a great idea, I pronounced admiringly. You came up with this just now, as we were walking? I've been fretting over it for a week. A different perspective can be of help. It's why I'm here, yes? Yes, absolutely. Can you take the lead? My niece, Sindrinea Vernays, can back you up tonight. She'll be attending this thing, and I'll clue her in. 
We need to integrate those ships with the other forces as soon as possible. There's no way to make action plans until the ships and the personnel are standing by. It is my pleasure to serve, the captain replied, bowing his head. Then he turned and led the way in. The party, or meeting, or whatever, went well. King Yadenga was every bit as deplorable as I'd expected him to be. Obese, sweaty, loud, boorish, self-centered, overly familiar with anyone he wanted to impress, and shamefully rude to everyone else. He made some little jests aimed at Sindra, which could have been taken as either unfunny but innocent, or unfunny and rather lewd. She acted like they were the former, so that the evening could go to plan. I kept my distance, talking with some officers I knew. Captain Zakorga spent much of the get-together telling the king tasteless jokes in Seishan and keeping his glass full. Yadenga's triple chins waggled like the caruncles of a turkey as he laughed and drank and laughed and ate and laughed. By week's end, after a great many courier dispatches to a certain accounting office in the kingdom of Baikoko, as well as to the Imperial Fiscal Division situated within the palace of Serojin, where Emperor Augustin IV held court at this time of year, Sindra reported to me that we'd taken possession of the fast attack strikers. Zakorga was a quick worker, and he got results. This was a very good thing, because three days later, the shooting began. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.